As you turn to the Gospel of John chapter 11, I hope that you're benefiting from our Lenten journey through the I Am sayings in the Gospel of John as much as I have. Hopefully, these last few weeks, we've allowed these scriptures to challenge and perhaps broaden our understanding of who Jesus is, and more particularly, why Jesus took that long road to Calvary and beyond. Beloved, if Jesus is who we claim he is, and if Jesus did what we profess he did, then we ought to be continually amazed, fascinated, and always learning from him. The more that we come to appreciate about this Jesus, the more we ought to realize that we have barely scratched the surface of his story, of our story, through him. And certainly you've seen in these last few weeks, and today will be no exception, that that's been the experience of those who first encountered Jesus, as recorded by the Apostle John. Just when people think they've got Jesus figured out, he manages to do things in a way that no one expects. And this week's passage is no different. Jesus is still surprising people, but this time the stakes are raised as things get personal. Word comes to Jesus that a man named Lazarus is gravely ill. Lazarus, however, is more than a man. He is a friend. Not once, but twice in this chapter, John tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And if you look through all the gospel accounts, it becomes clear that these three people were closer to Jesus than almost anyone else. In many ways, they were as much followers of Christ as were the 12 who were originally called by him. Now, given all of this, we would naturally expect that Jesus would immediately head for the home of his friends, the bedside of Lazarus. But if you're familiar with this text, much to our surprise, Jesus waits. Jesus doesn't act. Instead, he tells his disciples that death will not be the last word in Lazarus' battle with sickness. And Jesus waits for two whole days. After two days have passed, Jesus declares his intention to go back to Judea to see his friends. His dis disciples understandably protest. After all, Lazarus' hometown is in Bethany, which is less than two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus' disciples politely remind him, they don't like you much in Judea. If you recall, Master, they tried to stone you the last time you paid a visit to the south. To add insult to injury, once they're already on their way to Bethany, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus is dead. Can you imagine? Do we go there? Their shock and surprise? Contrary to any sort of common sense, Jesus is going back to a country where people want his head. Or to think of it this way, with Mary and Martha, Jesus waited when they wanted him to go. With his disciples, he goes when they wanted him to wait. He's risking his life for someone who's already dead. What good is that? What can he do besides grieve? Dead is dead, right? I invite you to hear the words of the Gospel of John, chapter 11, starting with verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, 
Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know now that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more was deeply moved. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's set the scene. Imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment Mary and Martha watching their dear brother decline in health, gradually growing weaker, and less responsive to their ministrations. They know that Jesus has incredible power to heal, and in their desperation, they send word to him that Lazarus is sick. Imagine the hoping and praying that their brother would simply hang on until Jesus, the healer, arrived. Imagine the anxious glances out the doorway to see if Jesus was coming up the road. Imagine. We can imagine all this, I think. But we don't have to imagine the crushing disappointment when Mary and Martha lost their brother Lazarus. 
Jesus was a close friend who had stayed many times in their house. And when Lazarus had taken ill, the sisters had sent word to him to come and make him better. But Jesus hadn't come in time. We recognize, don't we, the pain, the hurt of watching someone they love die as Martha puts into words this into words when she comes out to meet Jesus on his way into Bethany. Her first words to Jesus express a feeling that many of us have had or will experience at some point in our lives. When she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's first words express a mixture of frustration and lament. You could have done something about this, Jesus. You could have made a difference. You could have saved him. Many of us can identify with Martha's feelings of anguish and regret. Every one of us will experience more than once in our lives a similar grief. Had he arrived before Lazarus died, Jesus could have prevented her brother's death. But from Martha's perspective, Jesus withheld his healing power from Lazarus by coming four days late. Clearly, Martha believes that Jesus has healing power, hence her frustrations. With her next sentence, even in the hurt and the pain, Martha declares that she still believes in Jesus' power despite this disappointment. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Beloved, in the midst of her grief, Martha holds on to her faith. But her faith is incomplete. It is a faith based on her hope for the future. Let's be clear, Martha has no expectations here and now in the present. She is not anticipating or expecting anything from Jesus beyond the hope of consolation. The encouragement of what she believes will happen later. Not now. Her brother Lazarus is dead. It's been four days. He is gone. You hear this repeatedly in the text, this repetition of four days. And, and back in this time, the Jewish understanding was that the reason why four days was such a significant number is the Jewish understanding was that the soul actually hung around the body for three days, just in case. And it was on the fourth day, when, and again, this coincides with when you start to see decay, and on the fourth day, that meant the spirit had gone. It was over. It's been four days. It's over. He's gone. The hope of consolation, that's what Martha has. And at first, this is what Jesus appears to be appealing to when he responds, your brother will rise again. And this is undoubtedly what Martha hears, the faith of a future promise, not the expectation of something here and now, because she replies, oh, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Martha is orthodox in her theology, meaning that she believes what other pious Jews accepted in her day, except for the Sadducees. Other pious Jews in her day believed that on the last day, at the end of the world, will come the resurrection of the dead. This is the doctrine that she thinks that Jesus is referring to, a belief that she's been taught and held on to ever since she first learned it from the rabbis. Jesus, she thinks, is affirming the faith of their people. Martha has no idea 
that Jesus is about to do more than just affirm their faith in resurrection. He is about to challenge their understanding, their orientation towards resurrection. And so Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Notice how Martha answers and doesn't answer the question. She doesn't say, yes, I believe we will never die. She simply affirms that she believes in Jesus. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Martha cannot grasp the significance of what Jesus is revealing. While she appreciates and confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and that one day there will be a resurrection, Martha cannot comprehend how these things come together in Christ. Consoled and encouraged probably, but still missing the point, Martha runs off to get her sister Mary. Mary comes out and greets Jesus with the exact same first words as her sister Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Unlike Martha, though, her feelings are not expressed in private. All the mourners who have filled the house of the two sisters, we are told, end up following Mary because they think that she's gone to the tomb. Now, just as a little aside to appreciate the, the scene, to really understand what's going on here, just to get a better picture, we can surmise from the scriptures here and elsewhere that Mary and Martha were an affluent family. John reminds us that Mary was the one who earlier used an entire jar of ointment to wipe Jesus' feet. And one jar of ointment, if you remember, as Judas complains during that incident, costs a year's wages. Mary and Martha had money. And this means that they probably attracted a large crowd of people from the town when Lazarus died. Added to the mix were most likely, as we, 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 we may know about this, professional mourners. Loud, expressive, communal grief was standard practice in this culture. Even the poorest family had to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman. Given the probable wealth of Mary and Martha, we can picture lots of people, lots of mourners, lots of musicians, and lots of noise following Mary all the way into what is supposed to be a private conversation. And, if you notice, it doesn't take long for the crowd to join in the disappointment. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The words of the crowd mirror the sentiments of Mary and Martha. Everyone's heard, everyone knows that Jesus can cure an illness. A lame man walked. A blind man's sight was restored. Had Jesus been here, he could have done something to prevent this. But with Lazarus having died, what can he do now? What can Jesus do in the face of death? After all, death is the great enemy. It cannot be cheated. It wins every time. Death's success rate is 100%. As someone once said, it is one of only two sure things in this world, the other being taxes. 
By the way, the deadline's coming up. <laughs> One day, each of us will die. And until that day, we will watch too many of those we love fall victim to the same fate that awaits us all. Our only hope is a future one. We hold, like Martha, onto the promise of resurrection. Before the sight of all this morning, John turns the lens onto the face of Jesus as we are told that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. Jesus, John goes on to add to this description the shortest verse in the Bible. Just two words. Jesus wept. Now, our initial impulse here is to understand Jesus is grieving with the crowd, identifying with Mary and Martha and the rest who are hurting. And this is obviously the take of some of the observers who are present when they cry out, see how he loved him. And beloved, this morning, I don't want to take that away from us. I don't want to negate the reality of Jesus' compassion. I don't want to in any way deny, for it is true, the profound and invaluable truth that Jesus identifies with our pain and grief. But I'm going to tell you, this is not what John wants us to see in this scene. The literal translation here is Jesus was angry. Jesus was outraged. Jesus is deeply troubled, angered, not because he's feeling powerless, not because he is frustrated by the lack of faith in the crowd, not because he's being forced into a corner to perform a miracle, not even because he misses his friend. If you read this whole chapter carefully, John makes it pretty clear that Jesus knew what was going to happen and that Jesus knew what he was going to do in response. Jesus is outraged, deeply troubled by death itself. All around him, and that's why it's so important to picture this scene, all around him is a manifestation of what death brings into the world. The tears, the regret, the mourning, the brokenness. Jesus is confronting the sting of death, the most palpable reflection of sin, the scar of Genesis 3 that marks our lives. Death is the ultimate countermeasure to human pride going unchecked, to chaos reigning. But death also cripples. It denies humanity the full potential, the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. That God always intended for us to have. And so Jesus is ticked. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is outraged, outraged by the violation, the loss of death, what it takes away from us, the sin that causes it, and the unbelief which surfaces when its cold grip is felt. And so Jesus, after connecting with both sisters, goes to the tomb. As the sisters in the crowds find themselves standing in front of the tomb with Jesus, they all stare the reality of death in the face. And Jesus tells them to roll away the stone. His request shocks and offends them. Collectively, they have no expectations of anything other than the embarrassment, the impropriety of a terrible smell. For them, there's no illusions about what's happened here. Dead is dead. And Lazarus has been dead for four days. Their expectation is to wait for later 
to look for resurrection in the future. But Jesus tells them to believe now, to anticipate resurrection in the present. As he prays out loud, Jesus seeks to bring everyone into the revelation that he previously stated to Martha. Notice that Jesus doesn't ask God for anything. Instead, he thanks his father for who he is, for what he came to do. As the stone is rolled away, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. As he speaks, he mirrors the creation of life in the beginning. Out of nothingness, into the void, Jesus speaks life into existence again. As Lazarus hears his name called, as a dead man comes forth from the grave, the crowd experiences a glimpse of the future in the present when Jesus will speak and all the dead will rise. Beloved, when Jesus declared to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, he was proclaiming something new and radically different than what she or anyone else expected or understood. When Jesus offers the hope of resurrection, Martha, quickly and rightly, puts this hope into a last, distant day. But she does not see that resurrection is also a present reality. She isn't expecting anything now. She can only perceive resurrection as something that happens later, in the future. But Jesus seeks to reveal here and now that resurrection is something pre in the present as well as the future. Something happening, something tangible, something transformative now as well as later. Jesus does not narrow his focus only on present action, nor does Jesus hope, defer all hope to some future end. In him, present and future meet as he proclaims himself to be the resurrection and the life as he brings Lazarus forth from the tomb. I realize that the significance of this may still be lost on us. Beloved, what we're witnessing here, what this is about, is that resurrection is not something that happens to Jesus. It is also his possession. Life and death are not just under his authority. Life and death and resurrection are his essence before the crucifixion. Do we ever think about that? Before the crucifixion in the first Easter, Jesus is declaring that he is the resurrection and the life because his words point forward to what he will do when he is raised from the dead and lives forevermore. His words reveal that he is the one with almighty God, the great I am, whose life is eternal. We've got two weeks left, and then we're going to celebrate this on Easter Sunday, and we're going to engage this again with way more people in the room. But I want to push us. Resurrection isn't some abstract philosophical concept for us to examine, which is what we often make it. Resurrection isn't just something Jesus wants to do for us in some sort of generic way at a later date. What Jesus is revealing to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the crowds and us is that knowing Jesus, being with Jesus, is resurrection and life here and now. This is important. This is crucial because too many of us think and act in our day-to-day -day lives as if we have to choose between the two, the present or the future. Some of us choose to live in the moment. We live in the moment at the denial of the future. We don't think about death. We don't talk about what might lie beyond the grave. There's too much going on now. We'll deal with that later. 
This is even true of Christians. We're told that Jesus can save our life. And so we pray the prayer. We confess that we believe that Jesus saves, but we act as though this is a future reality, as if our salvation in Christ is some sort of IOU to be delivered on at a later date. That's then. We need, however, to live in the now, right? We have to live in this world, don't we? Every so often we might refresh our insurance policy in Jesus, and all this talk of God's kingdom is great, that's awesome. But that's still later. We have to live in the now. We have to live and survive in the real world. Others of us are always jumping ahead, wondering, even worrying about the future. Some of us become obsessed with the question, what happens when you die? We fear the unknown. We want answers. We want guarantees. And so we're continually fixated on what's going to happen next. When will our time be? What we can expect later? Again, even as Christians, we can fall victim to this mentality as well. We can be so busy, some of us, looking for signs of the end, trying to chart out that Jesus is coming back, that we miss the reality that Jesus is already here. We become so consumed with tomorrow that we miss today. We could become so consumed with the end, the book of Revelation, of what will be, that we miss the revelation in the gospel of what already is. Beloved, the debt that Christ pays for us all, the resurrection of Jesus brings not only hope for the future, but power for the present. We don't need to choose between the two, the present or the future, any longer. We don't have to sacrifice one for the sake of the other. Jesus is revealing that his presence, both the resurrection and the life, come together. With Jesus, resurrection is not something we have to wait for on the other side of the grave. Think about it. We can see resurrection all around us every day. Jesus is at work in our lives and in our world, making resurrection happen, not later, but now. We look and see the fingerprints of this, the hands of Jesus all around us. In the midst of spring, as the flower comes from the bud, as the apple comes from the seed, as the butterfly comes from the cocoon, as winter turns to spring, as darkness gives way to dawn, as a cross leads to an empty tomb. Beloved, what Jesus is saying to Mary and Martha and to us is much more than an affirmation of life after death. What Jesus is declaring is the offer of life in the face of death. And there's a big difference. With this Jesus... Resurrection can break in and raise us from the dead even now, not just later. With this Jesus, our lives can be full and complete now. We don't have to wait. And many of us are nodding our heads, but we do not live this way. We live this way as a forgiven people, as we declared, but we live as though we're still broken. We live as though we're still waiting and yet, as we've gone through John, do you notice that the one word that John uses more than any other to describe what Jesus gives to us is the word life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Just as the Father has life, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. I am the bread of life. Jesus doesn't selfishly keep this life to himself, saying, hey, pull that card out at the end and then I'll give it to you. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life so that we might live now. 
He is the resurrection who calls out to us, calls us out from the grave so that we would experience this abundant life now and not just later. If we understand Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we can stop speculating about the future and choose instead to live in the present. If we are in Christ, we will not be content with just hoping for resurrection later. And too many of us, too many believers in Christ, that's all we have is hope for resurrection later. But if we are in Christ, we will not be content with simply hoping for something that's coming later. We will only be satisfied if we are in Christ by living the hope of resurrection now. Beloved, if we trust the Lord for the here and now of this life, then we will not fear or worry about the hereafter. And yet I am fascinated by the number of Christians who have that card in their back pocket, who've prayed that prayer, and yet fear and worry overtakes them. Fear and worry overtakes them. What is our witness? What do we point to? The world isn't looking for something later. The world is looking for something now. And we don't have to say, oh, wait for it. Jesus comes and says, I bring it now. It's now. It's here. I'm here. I'm now. I am the resurrection and the life. So what is to be our witness? What is to be the reflection of the body of Christ if we who follow Jesus understand resurrection now and not just later, we will see life as a gift. And we will embrace this abundant life to the full, always perceiving, always pointing to new possibilities, fresh starts and second chances, always seeing them on the horizon and not in the distance. This is where we stand in marked contrast to every other rhetoric in the world. We never see endings. We only see beginnings. We are never concerned that it's over because in Christ, it's never over. And yet for many of us, that is our paradigm. Fear and worry ends rather than beginnings. Beloved, Jesus is calling us to be a resurrection people. Even though Lazarus was raised back to life. Do you notice? He was still bound up with grave clothes. Burial spices still marked the spaces between his wrappings and his skin. His jaw was tied shut and his face was covered. Even though he was raised back to life, he couldn't live that way. So Jesus told the people to untie Lazarus and set him loose. Don't miss that, beloved. Jesus told the people to untie Lazarus and set him loose. Here's the thing. Jesus, this Jesus we know, loves to resurrect people. But he also has this awesome habit of letting others in on the unbinding part, on the unwrapping. Beloved, being a resurrection people means that we are called to support life wherever it is threatened in the name of the one who was raised from the dead. That is our witness. We are called to live with those who are dying as witnesses to the one who died but rose again. Helping others experience resurrection life means getting our hands dirty. As Jesus continues to roll away the stones in the lives of those around us, we may have to deal with the smell. And frankly, in my estimation, the church is too clean and too sanitary. And yet Jesus is calling us to unwrap, to release, 
to be a part of the resurrection of the dead. And it may have to begin with us. Are we ready to be this kind of church? Are we ready to be this kind of people? I hope and pray we are. But again, to be that kind of people, we have to experience resurrection ourselves. So I ask you this morning, do you hear him calling your name? Do you hear Jesus calling your name? We hear this story and we think, am I Mary or am I Martha? Maybe you're Lazarus. Maybe I'm Lazarus. Do you hear him calling your name? Is Jesus calling you to come out of the deadness of your life? What a question. If you're hearing his voice this morning, and there's no mistaking it if you are, why won't you walk out of that tomb that you're in right now? Why won't you come out? Do you want to stay bound up in bitterness any longer? Do you want to remain wrapped up in a mound of debt? Ignoring, ignoring, ignoring what weighs you down? Isn't it time to be released from the chains of addiction that hold you? All the chains... Not just the ones that you're willing to admit, not just the ones that people already know about, but all of them. Isn't it time to be free of the doubts, the struggles, the failures that you wear like grave clothes? That you wear almost like a badge of honor? Are you ready, are we ready, beloved, to bury our past? Are you, are we willing to let others help what is keeping you? What is keeping us from being fully alive? In Jesus Christ, eternal life begins for the believer in the here or and now, or it never begins. Hear that again, beloved. In Jesus Christ, eternal life begins for the believer in the here and now, or it never begins. If you do not know him as the Lord, over the many deaths you die in this life, how can you have confidence for him to raise you in some unknown future? If you do not know him as Lord, over the many deaths that we die in this life, how can we say we have confidence in him to raise us in some unknown future? How can we claim the promise for life after death if we are not claiming his promise for life after birth. So I ask you, are you ready for life again? Abundant life, resurrection life. Are you ready because the stone has been rolled away? Jesus is calling. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Amen.